We're talking this evening about the topic of the Christian and the covenants. And by that, the covenants, I mean the major covenants that God enacts with people in the pages of the Bible. Now, the first question that comes up is why on earth are we studying that on this hot summer evening? What triggers our study of this topic? And the immediate thing is, is that a few weeks ago, uh, we were studying out of the book of 1 Samuel, and I, I gave, I think it was a four or five week series on how David was protected by covenant, that David and Jonathan had made a special covenant with each other, and the Lord used that to preserve David's life after Saul's attempts to do him in. That is in particularly 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. Uh, as, you, as we keep studying the book of Samuel together and in our times together for that, we'll see that the theme of covenant is going to be developed more deeply. In particular, we, we get to what we call 2 Samuel, and God is going to make a covenant with David that is going to protect him far more than anything that Jonathan could do. And that is then found in 2 Samuel 7. I'll say some more about that uh, in the latter portion of our study tonight. Covenants. You know, modern Christians are pretty unfamiliar with the notion of covenant. Let's just say modern people in general are pretty unfamiliar with the concept of covenant. We have contracts, and if you're in the business world, you're contracted to death, and all these paperwork, and you know what those are like, you know, all the legals, ins and outs, this, whereas this, and whereas that, and if you do this, and if we do that, and so forth. So there's, there's some similarity, but covenants are like contracts on steroids. Co covenants are more life-encompassing kinds of things. Uh, it used to be in Western society there were more covenants uh, throughout culture, but nowadays the last vestige of it is in marriage. The marriage, some want to call it today a contract. I don't like that terminology. I, I think it's better to use the, the language of covenant. The, the Bible on a couple of occasions refers to marriage as a covenant. It is the last great covenantal relationship that we have as an institution in Western society. And we dare say it's not faring too well as an institution here in Western society. So our familiarity with covenants is slipping, certainly. But if we can transport ourselves back to the time of the Bible and, and get our minds around the idea that the covenants are of the utmost importance, in fact, you could say that if, if, you, if you compare the Bible to a body with, which has limbs and a head and, and of course, there's the, there's the trunk, the, the, the covenants are like the spine of the Bible. Without that, it all falls apart. It, the covenants are what hold the structure, the body of the Bible together. And for that matter, it's what holds together God's plan for the ages. It's the key to understanding Scripture as a whole and what God is doing. So that leads us to answer the, ask the question, what exactly is a covenant? Well, we have to say, firstly, it is more than a promise. Uh, I, I can make promises to my kids, but I'm not bound by covenant to do it. Now, the, uh, the, in fact, I think I'm obligated to take one of them to Walmart later tonight to get something that uh, was pledged and approved by the other party wh with whom I'm in covenant. Uh, <laughs> uh, but a covenant is more than just an exchange of personal promises, yes, I'll do that, or yes, I'll stop doing that. Um, uh, 
a covenant is way more. So a covenant has not just promises. It does have promises, but it has vows within it. Now, a vow is a promise on a steroid, on steroids, if you will. These are really official promises. Vows, uh, oftentimes in the Bible, God is invoked as a witness. You know, you know how it is when you make an oath before the court. They, they make you, for now, I don't know how long they're going to keep doing it. You put your hand on the Bible and raise your other hand and you say, so help me God. And you are making an oath. You are making a vow that you will tell the truth. So um, a vow is a solemn promise that you will live a certain way, that you will fulfill certain responsibilities. So a covenant has that within it. And it has more than that. It also has witnesses to it. Witnesses. Generally speaking, a covenant requires the presence of witnesses who will testify to the validity of that, yes, in fact, a covenant has been made. And I, I know I'm a broken record when I use this example, but I, I love the, some of the wording of the, the Book of Common Prayer from the Anglican Church. I'm no fan of Anglicanism as a, as a whole, but the marriage ceremony, the traditional words that uh, are falling more and more out of use now, but dearly beloved, we are gathered today in the presence of who? The presence of God and who? These witnesses, these fancily dressed people up here to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. So a covenant is going to be enacted. God is witness, and these humans are witnesses. And that's one of the components of even a biblical covenant. Now, one thing that's different about some of the covenants that God makes is that sometimes the witnesses that he uses are not conventional. For instance, on a number of occasions, he says, I call heaven and earth as witness. Uh, and often is to witness against you that you're breaking the covenant that you made before. Nonetheless, the idea of there being witnesses to the covenant um, is quite common. There, um, when, when Israel came out of Egypt and they make a great covenant with God at Mount Sinai, uh, they were entering into a relationship that had some legal um, familiarity to them. Some of the nations around about them, let's say if you were uh, a, a king in one of the northern empires, when he would conquer other, they would conquer smaller nations, they would actually enact a covenant with them. And the, the conquered nation would agree to supply taxes, and the conquering king would agree to care for them and provide for their needs and not to lord it over them. And witnesses were brought in to verify that an actual covenant like this had been made. Uh, and so Israel was uh, familiar with these sorts of things on a large national sort of scale. All right, so it's more than a promise. A covenant has vows. It has witnesses, which, by the way, this is one of the reasons why marriage is more than just two people promising something to each other. You know, it's more than just, well, I love you and I'll be with you forever, you know, and ditto, I'll do the same. And, and uh, you know, there, there, there needs to be witnesses to affirm that this sort of solemn vow and covenant has been enacted. All right, that little sidebar is over. So it's more than a promise, it has vows, it has witnesses, and it usually has a ceremony or some sort of symbolic thing attached to it. There's some sort of ceremony. It might be a sacrifice that's made. Or there might be some sort of a service that is enacted at the making of the covenant that formalizes it and solemnizes it. 
Um, so in the marriage, uh, the marriage service, in the wedding, is the point of enacting the covenant. And there are symbols associated. I'm wearing one of those on my finger. This is a symbol of the covenant uh, that I'm in. And we'll see tonight as we talk about some of the biblical covenants that most of them have some sort of symbol associated with them too. Okay, turn over the inside of your handout, and we're still in the introduction, that's why we're not in any passages. I'll tell you this though, if you want to turn to our first passage, which we'll get to in a page or two, it's going to be in Genesis chapter 8. But uh, let me say also that this topic is not about what sometimes is called covenant theology. Covenant theology is the name of a system of uh, understanding the Bible. Uh, it's held, it's a, a view of the Scripture that is held by Bible-believing people, uh, mostly Reformed people, uh, for whom we're very indebted for a lot of their good work and their stands on many things, but I'm not talking tonight about covenant theology. Um, many folks who identify as Reformed and this is typically churches that are uh, Presbyterian or Dutch Reformed or things like that, will often assert that Reformed theology is the same thing as covenant theology. Now, certain the circles that we're in, there are sometimes we have uh, popular Bible teachers who will say, well, you know, as I've been teaching Reformed teaching and all that, and some of the really Reformed people sort of snicker and think, you, you, you're not Reformed. You don't hold to, the, the, to covenant theology. Uh, now, we teach aspects of Reformed theology. That is, we have a high view of God's sovereignty. But we don't advocate what is covenant theology. I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I, I have listed out there three points about what covenant theology is. Basically, covenant theology teaches that... Um, in, with, and under the Bible <laughs> are three covenants that, um, um, on which all of the other covenants of the Bible hang on. There's a claim that there's something called the covenant of redemption. And the argument goes that in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son covenanted with each other, that the Son would give his life as a sacrifice to redeem the chosen people, and that the Father would give those chosen people to his Son as an everlasting reward, and he would be given a name above every name. Now certainly there's an agreement between an understanding between father and son for that to take place, but I can't find a spot in the Bible where it's actually said that there was a covenant that was made. Nonetheless, this is a major point. Then there's the covenant of works. Supposedly uh, that God and Adam made a covenant in the garden. That Adam would represent all of mankind and that if he kept the law that was given to him uh, to till the ground and to not eat of that particular tree, that he would secure paradise for his descendants forever. But if he failed, he would bring upon them a world of woe. And we know, of course, Adam did bring upon a world of woe, the covenant of works. I cannot find such in the pages of Genesis, but covenant theologians are certain that it is there in the white space. And then there's the covenant of grace, a covenant which supposedly undergirds all the covenants that the Bible does explicitly talk about, promising everlasting life to all those who are in Christ, whether they live through the covenant with Abraham or the covenant with Moses or on it goes. So I don't find these three covenants within the Scripture. I find some of these ideas within the Scripture, 
but to say that they are covenants upon which everything else hangs, I, I don't see it. We, so we advocate what theologians would call a dispensational view of the covenants. That is, one thing that means is we focus on what the Bible actually calls covenants. And we'll see that there are five major covenants that God makes with humans in the pages of Scripture that have enduring relevance. Before we get to those five, I'll say that of the covenants that God makes, that you could divide them into two kinds. There are, the fancy words are unilateral and bilateral. So a unilateral covenant, that's where one party says, I will bear the weight of keeping this covenant alive. We are bound together, and you may fail, but I will keep the covenant going. I myself will maintain it. The other party's faithfulness is not required for it to be alive. Most of the covenants that God makes in the Bible are unilateral. Then there are bilateral covenants. This is where both parties promise and vow to keep the terms of the covenant and to face the consequences if they don't. The, the covenant in the Old Testament that looms the largest over all the Old Testament is the covenant made at Mount Sinai, and it is this kind of covenant. It's a two-way covenant. Now again, of these two, the one dominant kind is the unilateral kind. Now, that said, even though it's true that God maintains uh, most of these covenants Himself, it's also true that the people who are in the covenant, if they are obedient, if they are faithful, they will enjoy more of that covenant than they would if they are disobedient uh, and unfaithful. But the covenant is still secured by one party. I'll try to point out these as we go through the next portion. So now come with me to page three, and now we're going to slow down a little bit as we're going to be looking at different passages. Now we'll talk about the structure of biblical covenants. Um, the framework of each of the covenants that God makes has a number of elements to them. There are there's some key texts, that is, there's actual verses which say God was making a covenant, <laughs> as opposed to sort of reading it in between the lines, which some of our brothers in uh, Reformed theology do. So there's key texts. There's, there's a, a list of beneficiaries. Who are the humans, the creatures, who are going to benefit from it? There's a mediator. That is, there's one person through whom this covenant is made known, who makes it known to other people. There is ceremony and symbolism connected with each other about it. And then there are terms of the covenant. So each of the five that we look at, we're going to see uh, those elements. So now we come to the flow of the five covenants. And we come to the first one, which is in Genesis chapter 8 and, and chapter 9. It is the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made through Noah. And the year for that, if uh, assuming we're reading the genealogies correctly, that puts us at somewhere like 2500 B.C. And the key text for it is here in Genesis 8, verse 20. Uh, Noah and the creatures and his family have come off the ark. And uh, now we'll pick up our reading here in chapter 8, verse 20. The Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into their hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I have given the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply it. Then God said, spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now, behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth and the bow that I will be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, did you note, by the way, how repetitive that was? This is the first legal contract. Uh, phrases said again and again. It is ramping up the solemnity of what God is doing. God is making a covenant. And notice that while there are some obligations and responsibilities about the way they're supposed to live their life, things they shouldn't do, consequences, and so forth, but nothing will remove this covenant. God himself will fulfill this. He, he has promised to the world. Notice that it's not just a promise to Noah. It's to his sons and to all the living creatures. It's to all of the creaturely world that he is not going to do to the world what he had done before. The benefits, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the terms in just a moment, but the mediator of this covenant is Noah. He's the one who receives this word and made sure that it was recorded. And there's a ceremony. Noah had offered a sacrifice right before this. That tripped off of this, this uh, covenant. And then the symbol of it was the rainbow. And Steve in his uh, adult Bible class series recently commented on something that's it's an interesting possibility that why is it that God chose the rainbow for that? It, it might be that it, it also symbolized like a war bow, you know, that God is hanging his bow up not to shoot at the world again in that same way. That's possible. Nonetheless, that physical phenomena serves as a reminder of the everlasting covenant. That is a covenant that extends to you and me. 
we are in covenant with God because of what happened after the flood. God has made promises to us. And your dog and your cat and the cow that will become your hamburger later on. Uh, every living creature that he is going to sustain the world. So here's the terms of this covenant. There, there are no terms of expiration. There's no warning. But if you don't do this, if you kill too many people, then I'm going to wipe you all out. That's not there. There's a blessing of life that is promised. Now, if we obey and follow God's basic plan, it's a very rudimentary sort of laws that are given. But there is a implied in that is an increased blessing within life that comes through obedience. The promises are mostly about God is going to maintain the regularity of the seasons. You know, the flood was utterly disruptive. Nothing was normal after that. It didn't not normal rain. I mean, you couldn't tell if it was night or day. You couldn't tell what time of year it was. And then even after the water subsided, it took months and months and months before there was any normality. But God promises that there at the end of chapter 8, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, and you know, and it's pretty predictable. Yes, our weather varies, and we get surprised, and there's floods and things, but not, not, not like what they had. None of us woke up this morning wondering, I wonder if it's still summer. I wonder if it's, the weather is going to change dramatically. We're going to have winter next week. That's not the way our world works. God has maintained the order of things since that time. Now, what this does, this first covenant, this is the first time covenant is used in the Bible. And what this does is that it sort of creates a ground level by which the rest of God's promises operate. We learn from this that even though God is holy and righteous in his wrath, he also has a plan of mercy for the world. And it's not spelled out in great detail, but the groundwork for it is laid here in the Noahic Covenant. Sometimes I, I, if I had a, a whiteboard or PowerPoint tonight, I would draw for you a pyramid of the five major covenants. And at the bottom of that, the largest base stone would be this covenant made with Noah. So that's the first covenant that is made by, between God and men in the pages of Scripture. And then the next one is several hundred years later with Abraham around the year 2075 B.C. And we only have to flip forward a couple pages in our Bible to get to it, at least to the beginnings of it. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, uh, now these are the verses where God first calls Abram to leave his country and to go to a land he'd never been before. And the promise that's made uh, here, let's look at, at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now at this point, we don't have a covenant. What we have is a promise. We have a call and a promise. Get up and go, and I'll be with you, and I'll do for you what you can't imagine. Uh, Abram, who is already an aged man, it's hard to believe, but he believes, and he goes, and he goes into the land, and chapter 12 and 13 and 14, you know, the promised land doesn't look so promising. He gets into wars, almost loses his nephew. But God is with him, and... Uh, 
chapter 15 now, the promise that was made to him some 10 years before is upgraded to a covenant. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, and I'll just summarize the opening verses where, uh, well, let's read verses 1 and 2. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, how on earth is that going to happen? <laughs> because I've just, I just got out of wars here. I still don't have a child. The only prospect of a child I have is, well, through a complicated system of law in that day, um, the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. You know, he's a relative of a servant. Of, and the Lord assures him, no, what I promised you is true. I'm going to make a family out of you, a great family that's going to bless all the world. So come with me to uh, verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, for they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. How do I know, Lord, you're going to do it? God upgrades the promise to a covenant. Now the symbolism, the ceremony there is, uh, is partly something Abram does in real life and something that he dreams in part. Uh, he's told to gather some animals together and slaughter them, but in a certain way. He cuts them down the middle and separates them. I want you to imagine that the aisle down the pew here, in each of the section where the pews are, think of there being dead uh, animals. Um, it's not going to be very clean. There's going to be gore and guts and blood. Th there was a custom in Abram's day for some covenants between uh, rival peoples who were coming to terms with each other or some other arrangements for them to do something like this where they would cut apart animals and both parties would walk through the middle of that carnage. And it, was, it symbolized the fact that if either one of us violates the covenant, may the gods do this to us. It was a very visual way 
of thinking about the terms of their agreement they were doing. But in this covenant arrangement, notice that this vision of God as this burning oven goes through it himself. Abram's not allowed to walk through it. God is vouchsafing this whole covenant arrangement by himself. I will see to it. So for the terms of this, there is no expiration. The promise is that blessing will be, there is to be increased blessing if he obeys. And it's also implied here that your offspring, there's going to be a periods where they're not going to experience a lot of blessing, but I'm going to bring them back. I'll bring them to this land. They will possess the land. They will have a great seed. And they will be a blessing to all the nations. Those promises that are here put in the form of a covenant are repeated by the Lord several times more in Abram's life. And they're reiterated to Isaac and reiterated to Jacob as well as to Joseph as the centuries go on. It's not in this chapter, but a little bit later, um, chapter 17 Uh, the Lord tells Abram that there is a sign of this covenant arrangement, and it's one that you wouldn't normally expect. Uh, It's the sign of circumcision. Abram hasn't had his son yet. And the Lord tests him, do you believe that I'll bring this about? And he says yes, and so he commands them at the age of 99 to get circumcised. I don't think that's going to help your chances on a physical level of having a child. (laughs) But it's a test of faith because the birth of Isaac is the Lord's doing. And so it becomes a perpetual sign for the descendants of Abraham, particularly the descendants who come down through Jacob, that is Israel, and, uh, and the tribes, that their males are circumcised as a sign, as a symbol of receiving these promises made to Abraham. It's a, it's a great covenant. So if you think about our, our, our uh, sketch here that I'm drawing in the air, the Noahic covenant is the base, and the very next thing put on that, a little more specific and narrow in its blessing, is the covenant made with Abraham. But there's a potential for in the covenant of Abraham for all the families of the earth to be blessed. It's part of God's intention to bring not just the physical blessing of not, you know, still having winter and summer and seed and harvest and all that, but beyond that, to have a deep, rich blessing to life that is to be found through God's plan. Okay, now we come to the third thing, third time that God makes a covenant with man, and we need to go to the book of Exodus. There are, by the way, as you keep reading through Genesis, there are a number of other covenants made where people make covenants with each other. Abraham makes covenants with uh, some of the kings of the region around about him, and, but the greatest covenants are the ones that God makes. And now we come to the Mosaic one. Now, I've put it intentionally in your handout. It's in gray text. Uh, that's because this is the only one of the five that has a opt-out clause. It's the only one that is... Um, intended to be a two-way covenant, to be bilateral. And in fact, this is the only of the covenants that expires. But ironically, this is, the, this is the covenant, the covenant that looms over the whole Old Testament. In fact, the, the name Old Testament, testament is a, another older word for covenant. And in particular, it's thinking about this one. 
Because everything in Genesis and Exodus leads up to this point, and everything else in the Old Testament goes down the slope from here. 1446 is when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, and the first stop after they get past the Red Sea, the first real stop is Mount Sinai. And there is a long section about this covenant that God makes. And uh, uh, there's so much that we, we obviously can't read all of it, but I, I want us to <clears throat> read the beginning of chapter 19 of Exodus. In the third month, that is the third month since they left Egypt, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in the front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And then the story, which goes on the rest of the chapter, is absolutely terrifying. God comes down onto Mount Sinai. The whole mountain is shaking and quaking, and there's this awesome thick cloud and lightning, and eventually there's the sound of trumpets blowing from who knows where. You know, the scriptures speak about in the end times that the trump of God will sound, and they were hearing it then. I mean, the, and the Israelites are absolutely terrified. And what happens in chapter 20 is, uh, that, now the people agree to start this covenant interaction, and chapter 20, God, God himself speaks out the Ten Commandments from the mountain. These are the terms of the covenant. And after, they, after God speaks it forth, the, um, chapter 20, verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And so Moses becomes the intermediary and begins to go up to the mountain and to receive from God the remainder of the information about this covenant that he would make with Israel. Israel is the primary beneficiary. Moses is the intermediary of it. There is the ceremony. As you keep reading through this, you come to the end of this portion I talked about. The, uh, chapter 24, the people affirm their covenant with the Lord. They offer a massive sacrifice, huge sacrifice, to uh, to uh, solemnize their entering into this covenant. They agree, all the words which you have spoken, we will do. It is a holy and a, a amazing thing. And Moses takes some of the blood of the sacrifices and sprinkles it out upon the people to symbolize that they have entered into this agreement. Of course, they have almost no idea what they're committing themselves to. <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a fearsome thing. Now, this, uh, and I'll come back to say a little bit about the, the symbol for it, but this is the only one of the covenants that is conditional. Repeatedly, it's if you do this, if you do that, then I will do this. Blessing will be increased exponentially. The, the kinds of blessing that the Lord promises Israel are, are enormous. 
blessings that they've never known, much more detailed than anything promised to Abraham. But there is also, as you keep reading the Torah, warnings that if they break the covenant, he will chasten them and discipline them and if need be, judge them and damn them. If they break the covenant, then they will because they're sinners. The covenant has means for the covenant to be kept as whole, and it's the sacrifice, the sacrifice system. If you sin this way, you bring this kind of sacrifice. If you sin that way, you bring this kind of sacrifice. If you do this, you can remedy it by this way. Now, please know that from the beginning, none of this is about how to go to heaven when you die. That is not the issue. And I don't mean by that that Israelites never wondered about, well, what happens to us when we die? Because even the oldest portions of Scripture speak about that kind of thing. But this covenant, the, the covenant here is not about how can I know when I die and I'll stand before God and I get to go to heaven. The, the issue here is God is right here. How do we not die in his presence? Because one of the key promises of what he says at Mount Sinai is, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And that's something that as you flip back through the pages of Exodus and Genesis, that is something God has not done with mankind since the Garden of Eden. Now, God had been with people. There's references that God was with Abraham, God was with Joseph, but not in this kind of way. Just like God was on the mountain, he says in this covenant, I will be with you in the sanctuary. And build for me a throne appropriate for that, the Ark of the... And by the way, what's the name of that movable throne? That's, it's part altar and part throne. What's it called? The Ark of the Covenant. And what's inside it? The Ten Commandments, which is the document of the covenant, the terms of the covenant itself. It is an exceedingly precious relationship that they have. It's not really about how to get to heaven, but believe me, after operating under that covenant for a while, you start to think about, maybe heaven's going to be better. How do we get to heaven because we're not making it here? This covenant is loaded, loaded with potential blessings, but loaded with potential curses. And it's 40 years later, when Moses is about to die, that he reiterates the covenant for the second generation of Hebrews who uh, the, the, the sons and daughters of those who'd come out of Egypt. And he lays it all out. He gives them the Ten Commandments again. And, and the Lord speaks forth in the last couple months of Moses' life. The, the entire book of Deuteronomy comes from like the last two months of Moses' life. And, and Moses speaks forth all this long list of blessings. If you keep my law, this good thing will happen and that good thing will happen and the other good thing will happen. But if you break my law, and, and by break we mean forsake it, and, and don't use the means that God is to, to make things right then. This calamity will come on you, and that calamity, and the, ultimately, you will lose the land that I brought you into. I'll give it to another people, and I will not dwell in your midst. That is the curses of the covenant. That is what operates over the pages of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is mostly, not entirely, but it is mostly writings that come out of Israel's failure to keep the covenant. Now, God is faithful all along, but in the storyline of the Old Testament, what you find is that, well, seven centuries later, the covenant is irrecoverably broken. 
and God brings about what he had warned, the curses of the covenant, the full measure of it. Israel loses their land. They lose the temple, the place where God said he would dwell. He allows it to be destroyed. They're taken away, and it basically brings the Mosaic covenant to an end. Well, in, in this sense, the Mosaic covenant will no longer be the way that Israel is going to experience the blessings that God promised to Abraham. Uh, maybe you can think of it this way. Um, when God made promises to Abraham about special blessings, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to give you a great offspring through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's a final destiny. Abraham never experienced most of that, right? Long-term blessing. The covenant that God made at Mount Sinai is like a bus. And Israel gets on the bus to go down the road paved for Abraham. And the, most of the Old Testament is the story of Israel wrecking the bus again and again and again. And it finally comes to the point that there is no way we're going to get down the road on this method. So after the curses of the covenant are brought in and full, the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, are waiting, waiting for God to do the next thing, for him to bring about, which is the fifth covenant we'll look at in just a moment, the new covenant, which was promised even by Moses. Uh, very quickly, I, I think, in fact, I'm, I'm not going to discuss it at any length. There is a, a very brief, a few verses about a covenant made with the family of Phineas. Uh, around the year 1406. This is in the book of Numbers. Phineas was zealous for the Lord and uh, put a violent end to some gross debauchery that was taking place amongst the people, and the Lord rewards him and promises that the priestly line will be through him. And interestingly, as you read the prophets, uh, prophet Ezekiel, there is a place for them in the future as the uh, in the, the, the temple which will be established in the millennium, operating not under the Mosaic Covenant, but under something very different, there will be a place for them within that. And this one's different. It doesn't have a symbol to it. it. There's no ceremony apart from a prophetic announcement. For that reason, some theologians don't include this in one of the major five. But I mention it because it is a covenant God makes with a person and their families. But I want us to think lastly about the New Covenant which I would say was enacted in the year 32 A.D., or thereabouts, when Jesus was on the cross. Now, this is a, a covenant that was prophesied about even by Moses. Turn with me briefly to Deuteronomy 31, here in some of the last messages of Moses' life. Deuteronomy 31 in this chapter, Moses is prophesying to the nation about what they need to do in keeping the covenant at Sinai and, and prophesies that they are going to fall away. He tells them, they are, you, are, you're gonna, you cannot keep it, you will not keep it, you will fall away. And he tells them then in verse 31, though, that God is, well, you're going to have a hard time finding, let's see, I'm, I'm looking in the wrong spot. There is no chapter 31, verse 30. <laughs> So let me see what I, I wrote down the wrong spot. Uh, I think I want a chapter. Uh, well, look with me back at uh, uh, chapter 30, verse 6. I, I'm, I apologize. I wrote down the wrong reference there. Uh, 
But the part of that promise he makes, you can see hints of it here in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in the work of your hand and the offspring of your body, the offspring of your cattle, and on it goes. Great blessing will come to them. So he promises, he tells them, you are going to break this covenant, but God is going to make another covenant with you. And actually the phrase, and I forgive me for not finding it, maybe some of you will catch it. The actual phrase, I will make a new covenant with you. Moses was actually the ultimate prophet of the Old Testament. All the other prophets sort of fill in the gaps of things that he talked about. The next time it's really spoken about with any depth is about eight centuries later by Jeremiah. And I know I have the right spot here, Jeremiah 33. The, the prophecy of Jeremiah is lo, mostly a lot of bad news. <laughs> Jerusalem's going to fall. The Babylonians are going to conquer us. The temple's going to be destroyed. And this is just what Moses told you about. This is the curses of the covenant. You have broken the covenant. That's mostly what the book of Jeremiah is. But right in the middle of the book are several chapters of good news. And you see in chapter 33, verse 14, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth in those days. Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which you shall be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. So in chapter 33 and 34 and 35 is this promise of a new covenant that will replace the one that they had broken. Now I'm reminded that I've left out one here. Uh, I've left out the covenant of David. I'm going to come back to that at another time because that fits in so neatly with our study in the book of Samuel and also it ties in with this new covenant that's being made. So after the covenants made in the days of Moses, about 400 years later, there's a covenant made with David, that David and his line will be used to bring the people into blessing. And then it's not for another thousand years that the new covenant is made, made by Jesus. It is Jesus who in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, tells the disciples when they are observing the Lord's table that he is bringing about the new covenant. Luke 22, verse 20, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. How full of meaning this was. Jesus is starting what Jeremiah had said and Moses had said. The new covenant. And the new covenant is enacted not by the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams, but by my blood. Paul picks up on this when he's writing to the Gentile church. 
of Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, when he's talking about observance of the Lord's table, he quotes from Jesus. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Paul will tell the Corinthians in the next uh, letter recorded in Scripture for us that he writes them, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, speaking about his own ministry, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now what's striking that Paul mentions this here is that he's writing to a Gentile church. The new covenant, as it was spelled out by Jeremiah, and we didn't read all of the verses uh, this evening, but you can go back to those middle chapters of the book. It says repeatedly that it is with Israel, with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel. The prophets foresaw a new covenant with Israel, and yet we come to the New Testament and we find out that Israel are not the only beneficiaries. They are not replaced in any way, but there, are, there is room for Gentiles to may, be made beneficiaries of that covenant. Here I am, a Gentile believer, and, and my place in salvation is secured because of the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. Jesus cut a covenant with God, and I am one of the beneficiaries, as well as there will be one day, a generation of Jews who will come to know the Lord, and as Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. There's no expiration to this covenant. There's no opt-out clause. There's no you-break-it-you-pay-for-it clause. Yes, if I obey and walk in the Lord, there is greater blessing. There is greater enjoyment. But there is, this is such a new covenant. There, there's a new heart promised and a new relationship with God. And it's through this covenant that all the great promises that have been made before, through Noah to Abraham, um, skipping over the promises made to Moses, because that one is defunct, the, the promises made to David about his heir who would uh, bring about the glorious kingdom, all of that comes to fulfillment through the new covenant. So the new covenant, one last note there, has been initiated, that is, it started, but most of the primary beneficiaries are, are not, have not been enrolled yet. <laughs> most of the Jews to whom the covenant was offered have rejected it. So there's a phase of the new covenant that's operating right now. We're, we're a part of it by grace, by faith in the Messiah. And there's another phase coming when the Lord comes and there'll be a whole generation of Hebrews who will turn unto the Lord. Well, there is way, way, way more that I could say, should say, and I will say some more later on, particularly about the covenant made with David. But uh, this has given us a good overview, I think, this evening of the five or six major covenants God makes in Scripture. Join me in prayer, would you? We thank you, our God, for being a covenant-keeping God, for being faithful, doing all that you've promised to do, even when we're undeserving of it. You are faithful, and that, that encourages us so much to be more faithful. Thank you, Lord, for the new heart that you've given to us in Jesus and a new ability to know you and love you and to walk in your ways.
May we take full advantage of all the graces that are ours in Him and look forward to that which is yet to come when our Savior comes again and the fullness of the covenant with David is seen as our good King Jesus reigns. Until then, may He have complete control of our lives. We ask it in the name of Christ.